once you are working remotely, then at that point, if you're going to ex excel over a period of time, you do need a set of skills and you need to be kind of a little bit more conscious about developing those skills than you would do otherwise. So we've spent our time at Billion Minds really kind of identifying what those skills are and then obsessing over how to get those skills into people, right? Not just as things that they understand theoretically, but things that are embedded as behaviors on a day-to-day -day basis. What's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraszowski, and welcome to another episode of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from remote work experts, digital nomads, and location-independent entrepreneurs so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be joined by Paul Slater, the co-founder of Billion Minds, a training program that uses behavioral science to help maximize your professional and personal effectiveness as a remote worker. During this episode, we discussed why some people feel ineffective when working remotely, the five key skills you need to help you stay productive and maintain your overall well-being, and how to manage your energy and avoid burnout as a remote worker. But before we jump into this interview, make sure you subscribe to my newsletter, Remote Insider, where every Monday morning I share the most important developments in the areas of remote work, online business, tech, and the digital nomad lifestyle. It has been called mandatory reading by other subscribers, and if you enjoy this podcast, I guarantee you'll also love being a Remote Insider subscriber. You can subscribe to that at thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider. That's remote insider, all one word. And finally, if you haven't left a review of the show already, please consider leaving one wherever you listen to podcasts. I would really appreciate that. It really helps the podcast out uh, and shows people that this is something they should listen to. And if you want to leave a review, I've made it really easy for you to do so. You can just head on over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL and leave your review right there. It only takes two minutes. And like I said, it really helps me out and helps this podcast rank on the charts. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Paul Slater. Paul, welcome to the podcast, man. How you doing? Hey, Mikko. I'm doing good today. So uh, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast because uh, you're one of the co-founders of a company called Billion Minds, and we connected a few months back uh, and talked about some of the really interesting work that you're doing around what I would call the soft skills required to be a remote worker, you know, and what I mean by soft skills are kind of like if you're a developer, not your development skills, but like these skills that you kind of need and supplement to those in order to be like successful. Is that how you would describe what Billion Minds does? Yeah, you, you, you pretty much nailed it. Um, I mean, I think that uh, one of the ways in which we think about this is when you're doing remote work, when you're working outside of a formal office setting, a lot of the structure that is there in that formal office setting is gone, right? And that can be great, right? It can give you a ton of freedom. It can give you uh, the ability to be able to, to gain all of the, the benefits that, that digital nomads talk about. Um, but that structure that's there inside a, a formal office setting can also be kind of protective or it can give you some, um, some uh, support system, if you like, and some structure that you wouldn't necessarily have if you're, if you're outside of, uh, of the office setting. So once you are working remotely, then at that point, you do need, if you're going to ex excel over a period of time, you do need a set of skills. And you need to be kind of a little bit more conscious about developing those skills than you would do otherwise. So we've spent our time at Billion Minds really kind of identifying what those skills are and then obsessing over how to get those skills into people, right? Not just as things that they understand theoretically, but things that are embedded as behaviors on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Yeah, I really want to I really want to double down on what these skills are and kind of talk about it and and educate people uh listening because I think this is a really important topic and something that's become even more important as now post COVID there's so many more remote workers now they've had some time working remotely and they're starting to experience some of those like negative effects of like continued mm-hmm. remote work, which are definitely there. But first I want to ask you about the origin story of Billion Minds because you have a very interesting story. So I know this was originally supposed to be a book, right? And you guys did a bunch of interviews and what you found was that something, and correct me if I'm wrong, something like 90% of the people who you interviewed for this book uh, essentially said that they were feeling like frustrated and, and ineffective with their work no matter what level within the company they were, right? The interesting thing was like that they could have been entry-level workers. They could have been CEOs. Tell me about that. Like what was, what what were those things that people were saying? Yeah. Uh, actually, maybe I'll go back even a little bit further than that and and uh, and sort of talk about the the origin for me personally, right? Which was, I first entered the workforce in, 1994, I guess it was. Um, and, uh, so straight out of college. Um, and then after my first, uh, my first job straight out of college, pretty soon after that, I was in a job that was routinely outside of a formal office setting. I was doing it training, but I was doing it training across multiple different locations. Um, getting up in the morning, living in the UK at this time, getting up in the morning, traveling, you know, maybe 120 miles to a location and then training at that location a couple of days, staying in hotels, then going to another location, training there, staying in hotels, all that kind of stuff. And then most of my career kind of like um, continued on that path. I wasn't obviously thinking about myself as a, as a remote worker, but I was somebody who saw a hotel room more often than I saw my own bed. And I almost never saw, uh, saw a formal office setting. And Throughout my career, as I went into uh, to a series of different roles, largely throughout my career as I was growing it, um, I was still outside of that formal office setting. And because of that, I never really actually gave any thought to it as a skills issue or a, uh, or a, a challenge that people might face because it was so ingrained in, in who I was. It was, the, it was the nature of my job. And then... If you fast forward all the way to, um, gosh, it, I guess it would have been the start, end of, of 2019, early 2020. So just when the news about the pandemic was really starting to hit, and just as the lockdown uh, started uh, began, in the months leading up to that, um, my co-founder at Billion Minds, um, who was also my colleague and co-founder of an internal startup inside Microsoft that I was working at at the time, um, he had undergone a fairly similar journey in his own right, not where he was traveling all the time, but where he was building his career um, out of his home office in Raleigh, North Carolina, while the Microsoft head office was, was based in, in Seattle. And we were working together on this uh, on this project. It was called the Clinical Research Innovation Hub, and doing quite a bit of traveling at that time, and then spending time together, um, but again away from a formal office setting. And we, when I met him, that's what we started to talk about. And I thought that was re- it was really interesting because we we had this main job that was very very interesting, but what we were talking about is how can we you know, how can we be as effective as we can be while we're working in this mode, which is not having uh, a formal office setting? How can we be as effective when we're physically apart as we are when we're together? How do we maximize the time, the benefit of the time when we're together? And how do we maximize the benefit of the time when we're apart? So it was the first time really that I'd kind of like thought about it in the context, not just of the work that I was doing, but the work that I was doing with my co-founder in this, in the context of of this internal startup that we had. And that got us curious. And it just got us curious in the sense that maybe there was something about the skills that we'd organically built up over you know, decades, basically, that other people wouldn't necessarily really have, right? And 
we did a little bit of research for it. And as you rightly pointed out, the plan was to write a book. And with the book, what we were trying to get at was what do you, what do you do in a situation where work itself is becoming much more unstructured and ambiguous and much less tied to a location and much less tied to a particular time? How do you, ma- how do you make sure that all of the people doing that are doing that in a way that is fulfilling for them? and doing that in a way that creates um, great results for their companies. And so that's where the interviews began. And the interviews, we initially did around 300. It extended at this point to, uh, to a couple of thousand, actually. Um, we were trying to ascertain whether people were, were really, really nailing this remote work game well. Then those interviews were kind of like I say towards the end of 2019 starting to 2020, then COVID hits. And then that was really fascinating. Because if you think about it, you know, COVID has been talked about in many ways, but but one of the things COVID was, was a gigantic remote work experiment. So what happens when you don't just take the people that self-select into this digital nomad lifestyle, but you take like hundreds of millions of people that have not consciously done that, never thought about it and said, all right, go home and do everything you're supposed to do in the office and we'll see you in a few months. What happens in those circumstances? So that that that's what really led us to this finding that was fascinating whereby you had a whole bunch of people that were uh, kind of out of their depth they didn't understand it and were uh, and didn't have the skills and by the way many of the people that had even been doing it for longer also didn't have the skills so that was really interesting for us as well yeah and the interesting thing with with that experiment that you talked about with covid is that uh you know, it wasn't like the remote work that I became familiar with uh, when Absolutely, I got started yeah. working, right? Because uh, I was able to go to coffee shops and co-working spaces and travel and meet other people. And a lot of people got this experience of remote work of being, I'm just staying at home and working from my laptop and, you know, sharing an office with, uh, you know, my family and whatever it may be. And it, and it kind of like, I totally understand people who I remember like six, seven, eight months into the pandemic, they were like, remote work sucks. Like, why would you yeah. do this? You know what I mean? They were like, yeah. <laughs> why would you do this by choice? And so I, I totally understand that. So what what is it then about working remotely that you that in those studies, like, you know, you talked about or in those interviews, you talked about them feeling people felt frustrated and ineffective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about the work itself? Do you like? Did you find any like source of that? Like, why did people feel ineffective and, and frustrated when working remotely? Yeah, we did. And actually, you hit on an extremely important point, which is that um, as we were researching all of this, we almost had to like separate out um, mm. what this enforced isolation thing that people were going through. And all the stresses and strains associated with this enforced isolation were things that were really just related to the idea of the of working outside a, a normal office setting. So on the one hand, it was great because you had so many people that you could talk to, but on the other hand, it was atypical because the um, because the environment was was so strange, right? Yeah, it muddied um, the experiment. It muddied the experiment exactly, but you know, obviously, fortunately, people are out of that now, and many of those people that were working um, remotely uh, in that isolated setting, that enforced isolated setting are now not, they've kind of, they've kind of freed up and they can go back. So we've, we've gone back and we've spoken again to some of those people to really kind of uh, to, to clean up that data. Um, There's a few things that I would say that, um, that are directly related to the idea of working outside of a formal office versus this, this, strange environment that we were in uh, with COVID. So you talked about a little bit of it. Um, one of the um, one of the things that people say straight off the bat, um, which is a very positive thing, is they'll talk about the idea of being much more productive when they're out when they're outside the office. 
And when we dug into that, what we what they were often really getting into was the fact that um, there were some really good things that had come out of it compared to their office experience. So getting rid of a commute, for example, in many people that we spoke to, and this has since been backed up by external research, it uh, equated to getting more sleep. So they were the number the number one thing that people were doing with the extra time was getting like an extra half hour sleep or an extra hour sleep. Um, and because they were getting more sleep, they were more rested. So therefore they felt uh, more productive and in some cases were more productive. But that came almost like at a price on the other side, which is that um, they found, many people found it very difficult to start work effectively. In other words, to have them with no external trigger and potentially not like a first meeting of the day or something like that, it became very difficult to sort of get into, into the work zone. Mm, and like people found gear of working, getting gear and found that, and people found that frustrating, particularly people that were, you know, have a good work ethic and were proud of the fact that they, uh, that they did good work, their inability to be able to do that when in quotes, nobody was watching that, that was frustrating. And then the flip side of it that we that we've seen a lot of is people finding it extremely difficult to disengage from work at the end of the day. So a, a quote that we got more than once in interviews was, uh, and people, <laughs> it's kind of funny because when people said it, they always thought they were being original saying it, but they would say, um, <laughs> they, they, so sorry to somebody, somebody's listening. Isn't that the truth story. about so uh, many yeah. things? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but they would say, I feel like I've gone from um, working from home to living at work. So in other words, if it started mm. as a feeling like they were working from home and it's finished in a, it's finished in quotes for them, like they're living at work. And what they're really getting at is they don't find a, a real way mentally um, to be able to disengage from work modality and engage in a non-work modality. Now, of course, we're all, you know, a cell phone away from, <laughs> from, from work, no matter where we work. And even people that like go to work on a train and, and, and leave work on a train, they're still in that mode. But there's something about that um, walking out of the door out of a physical location that in some way shifts you into, uh, into a different mode. And they hadn't found a way to recreate that in a world where, uh, where that structure of the workplace had gone. So a lot of it is, is down to those things. Yeah, it's, you know, it's always made me wonder about, like, I know some people who really take this idea of an unstructured workday. And mm -hmm. it's kind of like, got, like really ran with the idea to where they take like lots of breaks. They're, you know, like kind of like doing different things. And to me, it's always felt kind of like, I've never really liked that idea. And even though I can technically create whatever work schedule I want to, I always find myself doing something very similar to a nine to five because I almost need those start point and an end point you know if it's constantly broken up into like a hundred small pieces of work i don't know it's i it, it to me it seems very stressful almost yeah yeah i mean you 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 absolutely are not alone with that and as we do work with people on giving them the skills that they need um that is actually one one piece of it now of course it doesn't have to be centered around the nine to five, and in many cases, it should not be right because a lot of of what we'll be discussing today is very dependent on things like neurodiversity. So, for example, if you do, you know, if you do your best work um, in the evening, if you're a night owl, and if you've not got other things to <laughs> that you want to be doing in the evening, then maybe it is better that you time shift what you do towards a latter part of the day. But it is true to say that what people that are really successful at doing this stuff do is they impose just enough structure to allow them to get stuff done. 
And so it's about finding what that structure is and then and then implementing that repeatedly as a set of behaviors. So I know that this is, in a perfect world, this would be custom for every person, right? Because mm -hmm. everyone has different situations. Like, you know, some people work best in the morning, some in the evening, some whatever it may be. What are so sort of like the common schedules or the common sort of like disciplines that you found that work for people, right? Obviously some people may need to like customize this for their specific case, but like what are the best practices, so to say that you've found? Yeah. So, um, let me, let me break it down, I guess, probably into what the, what the skills are. Um, and I think that might be, uh, that might be the, the best way to describe it. And by the way, I'll talk just for a second about how we, how we came across them. So I mentioned that we did, we did all these interviews and you meant we, we talked about the fact that, you know, 90% of people in some way, shape or form struggle with, with being as effective as they'd love to love to be while working remotely. And, um, the great thing about all of those interviews is that in the context of them, we were able to not just identify the 90%, but we were also able to identify the 10%. Right? And so, so there are 10% of people out there that have just nailed this thing. And I mean, nailed it as in consistently been effective over the period, you know, a period of years or a period of decades, um, and have a deep understanding themselves of what it, of what skills they've developed and why they've developed and what they had to work on in order to be able to make this work for them. So you just hinted at a bit of it yourself. You talked about the idea that, you know, just kind of like, letting your day stretch out <laughs> and like taking, uh, I would say almost taking like randomized breaks all the time. Cause taking breaks is extremely important, but, but taking like randomized breaks of the day and just sort of, you know, starting when you start finishing, when you finish dragging it out for 12 to 14 hours a day, that's not really sustainable. So you've kind of identified that as something that, um, that works for you. So this 10%, they'd done that kind of across the board. They'd figured that out across all aspects of it. Now they weren't perfect, but they also knew the areas where they weren't perfect and therefore they, uh, they knew the areas to be able to work upon. So that primary research combined with the secondary research that, um, that we did as well was kind of like the basis for what I'm about to tell you. But in short, we think about this as, um, as really, um, if you like, the best analogy I could use is a, is a battery. We sometimes refer to it as a brain battery. And what you're doing ostensibly, if you want to be sustainably effective at working outside of a normal office setting is you've got stuff that is responsible for charging that brain battery, which you can loosely call all of those activities well-being. So things like getting enough sleep and getting enough exercise and eating well and, and maybe meditating and things like that. There's all of that stuff. And that's how you go about kind of building up this, um, this amount of energy that is going to sustain you through the day. And then there are five key skills that all these 10 percenters have. Um, and collectively, these five key skills together, if you execute them really well, they deplete that battery slower than you would do otherwise, meaning that you get to the end of the day still with some energy able to kind of pursue the rest of your life and you can wake up the next morning motivated and ready to take on the next day. So the five key skills are, I'll just name them initially. So it's, so the first we call organization. The second is control. The third is motivation. The fourth is balance and the fifth is resilience. And so organization is kind of what you would expect it to be. It's kind of like, you know, organizing your stuff and organizing your time and all that kind of stuff. But to your point of before, figuring out how to do that in the best way for you, because not everybody organizes in the same way. That's why most personal productivity books don't work is because they don't reflect the neurodiversity of the person that's doing it. So it's figuring out just enough organizational structure that will work for you. The second is, as I mentioned, is control. And that's really about how much control you have versus how much you cede control to, to other people. So for example, you might be as organized as you can think, but your calendar is wide open um, as uh, for a good proportion of the day. And 
as a result of that, everybody else is picking when you do stuff and what you do. So you don't have any time to actually get the stuff done that you're supposed to do in your job because everybody else is taking your time. The third is motivation, as I mentioned. Um, and people sometimes are surprised that we think of motivation as a skill, but it absolutely is. And we, we spoke a little bit earlier about this idea that, you know, people are find it difficult sometimes to be able to get started on the day or to be motivated throughout the day. And the most skilled people that we worked with, they hadn't completely solved that, but they recognized it, right? So they weren't frightened by it. They weren't, they, they realized, they recognized it was normal sometimes to wake up at nine o'clock in the morning and no matter how much you love your job to go, I don't really want to do that today, right? And then they were able to ride that, work with that, and over time, stay motivated to do the things that they wanted to do by connecting what they were doing with why they were doing it. The balance piece um, is different to what you might expect. So people often think about balance as kind of like work-life balance, work on one side, life on the other. Well, that doesn't work at all in a remote work setting because there is no... You're not going to the office for nine to five and then leaving the office um, at, uh, and then done. And you're not just changing the ratio between those two things in order to be able to establish balance, and especially in a world where you can be interrupted at any time and you can be out at the ball game and, you know, get a, get a notification from your boss or whatever it happens to be. So instead we think of balance as a balance of relationships. So it's like a balance of the relationship you have with yourself uh, and a balance of the relationship, balancing that against the relationship you have with your colleagues and the rest of your work. And then the third piece of that equation is all of your, you know, your loved ones and your friends and your family and all that, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it's balancing those things across space and time, right? So that's a, uh, that, that's the balance piece. And then the last skill is resilience, which is really centered around what you do when all of that other stuff changes <laughs> and what you do when the plans for your day change or the plans that, that you had for all of those different parts of your life are interrupted or thrown into turmoil by other things. Because that happens more in unstructured, ambiguous environments like remote work environments than it does in more structured environments because the thing that you're disrupting is itself um, prone to disruption, right? So those, those five things, the really, the people that really, really get this for a sustainable period of a, you know, not just months, but years and decades, they're paying attention to those five things and they're working on those five things. So that's why we focus on identifying those skills and then embedding those skills and the people that need them. Mm. Yeah, what's interesting is a few of those points, uh, a few of those five, like really remind me of recently we've been talking on the podcast. Um, I talked about this with um, uh, a few different people on the podcast recently is like this idea of burnout and why burnout is becoming such a big issue with remote workers. And one of the things is like, Someone said this to me that made me think about it, and I can't remember where I read this or I heard it or whatever it was, but it was that burnout doesn't necessarily mean working too much, and we are constantly seeing companies trying to solve burnout by giving people vacation days. But actually, like if that were true, then you wouldn't then every workaholic would be burnt out. And yet I'm sure you know a workaholic that is just not burnt out constantly on it. And it's because it's a <laughs> much deeper. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one in, in some cases. Um, yeah. But it's one of the things that I found was this, that burnout is very closely related to a lack of control and yeah. feeling like you're working a lot, but not actually seeing progress. Right. It's like yeah. if you're working constantly, but you're seeing progress that sort of recharges your batteries, but constantly working and feeling like you're not getting anywhere. That's like when you start to feel a lot of burnout. And I feel like these five points, at least several of them almost touched a little bit of that discussion. Would I be correct in that? You'd be absolutely correct. In fact, we, I mean, we directly relate it to that. So that's actually why we use that analogy of the battery. So, um, when you, when we see people that are either in early stage burnout or latter stage burnout. Now those are quite different to each other 
to be fair, right? So I've been in, I personally was in a situation, um, I would say, uh, gosh, this would have been in the uh, late 90s, I think, something like that, where suddenly burnout hit me and I was completely unaware of it. And we can talk about when that happens because that's actually quite scary because sometimes people almost like they're enjoying their work too much and they kind of like don't realize that they are getting burned out. And then when it hits them, it really hits them. But what we've been able to identify, and we haven't quantified this in a study yet, but I'm hopeful that we will do in the coming year, is that that well-being thing that I was talking about, which charges your, your brain battery, and those five skills, which if you execute them well, mean that you're discharging that brain battery um, less fast, if you like. If you if you nail these five skills, then basically your in quotes brain battery is ending positive at the end of each day. And that is what is kind of helping insulate you against burnout. But if you are regularly drawing on, you know, reserves, if you're going into the red each, each day, doesn't matter how much you enjoy your work. It doesn't even really matter. Yeah. You can, you can, you can go on the well-being side and like, take a take a couple of days vacation to try and charge it up a bit more but if you're discharging it fully each and every day you're going to you're going to struggle and this comes back to the point that we were kind of, we almost kind of led off with in terms of of what's different right if you if you really think it through back in the day when people worked in a formal office setting with traditional office hours as well and there were no phones, right? I'm old enough where I did this, right? When I would, when I would finish work and shut the door on work at let's say five o'clock at night, and then nobody could contact me, nobody was talking to me or anything along those lines, right? Um, and you know, no boss was saying, you know, I need this from you by tomorrow or anything like that. They couldn't even get in touch with me in most cases, right? I got sixteen hours of actual rest every single day from work. And I got 64 hours of rest from work every weekend. And so it doesn't really matter. That's just gone. So it doesn't really matter what you do on the, on the well-being side. If you're doing it in isolation, you're still vulnerable to burnout if you're not paying attention to those, uh, to those five things that we mentioned. So you're absolutely, you're absolutely dead right. Yeah, because even if you're not, like, I even think about this, like, it's so much of my life, for example, and I'm not the only one, I feel like with this idea of doing something that you're passionate about, right? Like, that was such a big movement that now so many people find themselves in a position where they're doing something for a living that they genuinely care about. And so, or a topic that they're interested in. So even when they're not in quote unquote work hours, Maybe they're checking Instagram or Twitter and a lot of the accounts that they follow are work-related. And so you're constantly indexing things that you see on Twitter and you're like, oh, that's interesting. That's like, you know, relates to something that I'm doing at work. And it's your brain is constantly almost in work mode. Um, so I think that that's very interesting. But how do you reverse burnout then? Because one of the things that I feel like is true with burnout is that it's almost like a negative flywheel in that you feel like, you know, you are getting tired, you're not getting focused, you're not able to get your work done. So because of that, tomorrow, you may wake up earlier in order to get more work done. But because you wake up earlier, you get less sleep. And because you get less yeah. sleep, you start the day with less battery. And it almost like you see that negative momentum sort of building. How do you stop that and turn it around without saying like, I'm done and like not working? Because obviously, for a lot of people, that's not realistic. Yeah, I'll I'll answer that. I want to address the 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 point that you made before because I think it's so important, and I I think I probably have a pretty contrarian view in terms of what people of how people talk about do what you love, right? Now, doing what you love is great, right? I'm totally doing what I love, absolutely love running this company. I'm completely passionate about it. It takes you know like all, almost all of my brain cycles in order to be able to do it, and that is great. However, um, you have to be aware of the fact that doing what you love is 
great, but it certainly doesn't make you immune to burnout. And if you don't believe that, then look at statistics on founder burnout, for example, right? I mean, if you're a founder of a company, by definition, you should, you should be doing what you love. I mean, you're inventing what you're doing, so you should be doing what you love. And founder burnout statistics are lousy, right? Um, and so particularly in a world where you work in a way that is unstructured and ambiguous, you are almost more vulnerable to burnout if you do what you love because you are less likely to even want to switch off from it. So I just want to like, people need to be very, very aware of that, that it's not, it's, it's good for many things, but it's certainly not protecting you against being burned out. And so you need to, you need to do these things almost even more if you do. And that's why one of the reasons why we work with founders. I, uh, just to interrupt you on that very quickly, I relate to that so much because like I, love this podcast. I love talking about this. This topic is something that I'm very, very passionate about. It's something that I like, I think about all the time, almost to a fault because I don't really have hobbies. Like people ask me like, what do you do outside of this? I'm like, nothing really. Like it's, this is just what I think about all the time. And because of that, I've found myself experiencing burnout multiple times because just constantly what I'm thinking about, you know? Yeah. And then you ask the question to, yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, you asked the question about how do you go about reversing it, and I think there is a there's a few things that are really uh, that are really important. So, the first thing, and it's going to be fairly obvious, but I and I alluded to it just before. Um, reversing burnout is a whole lot easier when it is low level than when it's full on, right? And so we have we've worked with people who've sort of spotted that they're feeling a bit burned out, but not done anything about it because, you know, they're too busy. <laughs> um, and, and then ended up being uh, fully burned out. We've also spoken to people who are completely unaware that they were getting burned out until one day they wake up and they, it almost feels like you've been hit by a truck and you can't, you can't do a thing. Um, and the idea of doing anything feels the most scary thing on earth. Um, and you know, it's the research on burnout is really interesting now. Um, the world health organization rec recognize it as a workplace disorder in its own right. Um, and so it's good. There's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more research that's being done as a, uh, as a result of that. So the first thing is, is if, if you're seeing any signs of it whatsoever, then that's the time to address it. No matter what else is going on in your, in your life, that's the time to like really focus on, on addressing it. And then the second thing I think is important to think about is we, we alluded to it before, but just like people tend to focus so much on the well-being side of the equation, which they should, right? As in, um, they should focus on all of the eight different dimensions of well-being, not just not just sleep, you know, but start thinking about all of those other, you know, those various different dimensions to really make sure that they're uh, that they're getting enough um, energy in the first place. But then equally focus on those other sides of the equation. So I'll give you one example of one where we see this uh, where we see this quite a lot on that balance side. Um, so whether we have a bunch of hobbies or we don't have a bunch of hobbies or whatever it happens to be, we all have those relationships that I was talking about before, right? So we all have that relationship with ourselves. We all have that relationship with other people, whether it's friends and family or whatever what it happens to be, but people that are outside of the work sphere. And then we have those relationships with people that are in, uh, that are inside the work sphere. It's very common to find that people that are, hurtling towards burnout are neglecting probably two out of those three. So they're, <laughs> they're neglecting the, the, the friends and the, and, uh, the other relationships that they have outside of work and they're neglecting the, their own needs. Right. And as a result of doing that there, it can become difficult to pull that back. I mean, a pra purely practically, it can be difficult to pull that back. Like, let's say for example, that you've been, kind of ignoring your friends and family for like two years, right? Reigniting those relationships itself takes effort and you may not have the ability to put in that effort when you're in a burned out state, right? So it's really super important to start 
focusing not just on the well-being side, but on those uh, on those other areas to make sure that that you're addressing both before you get to a point where you feel like you can't cope with it. Mm. You mentioned, you know, like seeing that it's easier to stop burnout from happening if you kind of like start seeing the warning signs and like not letting yourself end up in like a really burnt out state. What are the warning signs of burnout? Because I think burnout is this thing we all know about, but it's kind of like a, like, we don't really know what it is. Like, are you burnt out? Are you just tired? Are you depressed? You know what I mean? It's kind of difficult to actually know. So what are those warning signs that people should be looking out for when, you know, so that they know that they're starting to head in that burnout uh, direction? Yeah, I love the question. Um, And I love the question for a bunch of different reasons, because you know, it, it kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever done sort of long hikes or, or anything like that, or any kind of endurance workouts, but like, if you do like multi-day hikes, they often tell you in the group, like eat before you're hungry and drink before you're thirsty. Right. And, uh, and then it's sort of similar deal with, um, you know, if you're doing like triathlons or something like that, you know, you need to make sure that, that it's happening before, um, you know, before you realize what's going on. And that's why I love the, that's, that's one of the reasons why I love the question so much, because um, when people think of symptoms that are definitively psychological in nature, you have to, you have to almost be aware ahead of time of what those are and whether those are indications of something more chronic or whether they are just something that is acute. Because obviously, obviously, you know, if you're, if you drunk eight beers the night before and got two hours of sleep, you're going to feel tired the next day. That doesn't mean you're burned right, out. Right. That just means that you didn't, <laughs> you, you, in an acute way, didn't recharge, recharge that battery enough. And so those things, that way that you feel might be kind of similar to how you, to, to some of the more, you know, uh, direct symptoms that you might feel associated with burnout. So because of that, we tend to think of it um, in terms of early warning signs. We tend to think of it in terms of um, the things that you're doing, right? So versus not so much how you're feeling, but how you're behaving. So let's say, for example, that you're still getting the same amount of stuff done every day, but on a regular basis now, um, that getting the first thing done each day is just harder than it used to be, right? Now, you might look at that and you just might go, oh, well, you know, everything's, everything's the same, but I'm just like, I've just shifted half an hour before I start to feel my work mojo. Well, that could be true, right? People do actually like the, the sort of when we do our best work is largely fixed, but it's not completely fixed. So sometimes it does shift over time. And sometimes, you know, we're better if we start work at 10 than starting work at nine or better if we start work at eight and start working at nine. So that could, that could be true. But often it's just an indication that our behavior is is changing a little bit. Or maybe it takes us longer to get the same amount of stuff done, right? That could be also an indication that that something's going on. Or maybe maybe we're kind of like those people that like to sort of like take breaks. And, and when we're taking breaks, we want to hang out on social media, for example. And, but we're pretty, we, historically, we've been pretty good at like pulling ourselves back from social media after like playing around in it for 10 minutes or whatever it happened to be. And now that 10 minutes is turning into 15 or that 15 is turning into 20, right? Those are sort of some of the things whereby you wouldn't necessarily feel that as burnout, but the, the signals are there, right? The signals are there in terms of, of what you're doing across these different dimensions, that are indicating that there is uh, that there is a, a challenge for you. Another thing, which I think is related to it, is that oftentimes and this is one of the benefits of um, working outside of a formal office setting, but it's also one of the challenges. But if you're if you're regularly around people that are really close to you, so let's say you're working from home more and work versus working at the office and something about the way in which you're working is changing or something about the relationship with your, the other people around you is changing. Often the people around you will tell you if you ask, right? So 
it's really interesting whereby, for example, um, people often don't, don't self-assess this stuff particularly well, particularly when it comes to the area of balance. We've had many people we've worked with at Billion Minds whereby they come into our program. We do like a self-assessment <laughs> with them when they, uh, when they come into the program. And we actually offer a, um, a free remote work skills assessment that anybody can take um, that allows you to kind of like assess where your skills are across those five different dimensions. But people often self-assess on balance wildly off. So they'll come into the program, they'll kind of learn more about, you know, sort of what this balance thing is and how good they are at integrating their work with the rest of their life. And they'll self-assess them, themselves as being like super good at it. And then they'll tell their spouse that they've done it and the spouse gets interested and they say, oh, what did you assess yourself at balance? And they'll say, oh, I was like nine out of 10. And they'll be like, oh, I think you're more like one, right? So, so it creates these really, <laughs> flip, flip these, scale, these really yeah. interesting discussions, you know? So the people around you are also a good source of, of insight as well to let you know. But you need that check engine light. You really do. You need, like, you need to know that something is, is a little off and then you need to start trying to address things before it becomes the bad thing. So how do you build those skills? Because I'm very curious now in terms of like, you know, I the uh, for me, the answers have always been like when people talk about burnout, it's always like, well, get more rest and get more sleep and exercise. And all of those things are true, but I've always felt like, okay, but like there has to be something else, right? Like yeah. I understand that, but that that answer is never, it almost, it that answer almost feels like a, well, do the do the things you're supposed to do, right? So I'm very yeah. interested in these skills and how do you actually build these skills? Obviously a billion, a billion minds, that's kind of like you guys have work around that, but how, yeah. how do you build those skills is something that I'm very curious about. Yeah. Uh, so again, super, super interesting question. And it's something that I believe that um, until recently um, the world's kind of got wrong, right? If you're, if you're like an average um person who's been in corporate America or around it for any period of time on your bookshelf, you've probably got at any one time, like, like, I don't know, 15, 20 self-help books or personal productivity books or whatever it happened to be. And not, not to diss them, there's some interesting stuff. And we've read hundreds of them as part of our secondary research at, at Billion Minds, right? But I'm talking about things like you know, getting things done or there's, you know, eat that frog and, you know, and, and things of that nature. And then also things that kind of like deal in mindset. So stuff like grit and growth mindset and things. And particularly on the, uh, I mean, the basis for any of this stuff is a growth mindset. So we're not dissing that at all. You have to have the willingness and ability to, uh, and an ability to change. But the challenge with the methods and techniques that are typically taught in personal productivity books is actually there's there's two challenges right one they're just a book right so you're reading it and you're gaining some kind of theoretical understanding but what is actually changing in your behavior as a result now i mentioned that 90 10 split um it's even worse when it comes to that right one of those questions that we were asking people was we asked them okay how many you know which ones of these have you read right and then certain proportion of people would have read these books. And then we asked those people, what, how many of the, or did any of these books materially change your behavior after six months? And the answer was almost uniformly no, because it was theoretical. But then the other aspect about it was that it didn't take neurodiversity into account. Like the worst candidate for me is something that I, I'm just calling this one out because it's top of mind, not because I hate it, but, um, although I'm not that big on it, uh, there's, there's one called the 5am habit, right? And the, the premise of the book, uh, there's a bunch of other interesting stuff in it, but the premise of the book is really centered around this idea that if you can, you develop this, this habit, really successful people get up really early and they do a bunch of stuff while everybody else is asleep. All right. Well, try telling that. I know this company's not doing great right now, but try telling that to Mark Zuckerberg, for example, who is a night owl and sleeps in and starts work later, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work for, for people that are structured in different ways. So the embedding, the, the key here to your point is that you've got to move beyond the idea of just theoretically understanding it to embedding it as a skill. So the way we do it 
is we do it through what we refer to as learn, do cycles. They're about 10 minutes in length. And what you're doing is you're spending about two to three minutes in our platform, um, understanding and learning what the skill is. And then you're spending seven to in the range of seven to eight minutes, um, practicing that skill and embedding the behavior. So informally we call our billion minders, we call them apprentices because they're learning like an apprentice does. You're, you're learning by doing, you're learning by actually starting to embed it in the behavior. And the reason that you have, there's, there's actually two reasons you have to do it that way. So the first is that you will not embed it as a behavior if you purely understand it theoretically. It would be like asking somebody to learn how to drive a car by reading a book on it. The second thing, which is at least as important, is that as the, t the, the time which you're spending practicing is figuring out how to implement that skill in a way that does work with your brain, that does work for you. It's actually the heart of why you can't, you can't learn to drive a car without, by reading a book on it. Cause you've got to be able to figure like, like your perception of space is going to be slightly different to anybody else's, right? The way in which your musculature works is going to be slightly different. Your arms are a different length, right? <laughs> Everything is slightly, is slightly different. And so you've got to learn by practicing. And so that's how you can, that's how you ultimately be build these skills is through that concept of being able to understand, to understand what it means for you. And you only get that by doing the do part of the learn do cycle. Mm, that's so interesting. So are these like, are these the skills that you're practicing in terms of like the learn do they're relating to those five skills? And then yeah. Do you have like a bunch of different exercises to do for each one of those skills in order to like learn them? Yeah, exactly. So, gotcha. um, so can you give some in, examples of those? Yeah, sure. So, um, I think a like a really good one for us would be, and I and I should I should just sort of um, digress a tiny bit and kind of explain how how it works. So we've got these, as I say, we have the the videos, and for each of these skills, there's like I don't know, in the range of like ten to fifteen videos, something along those lines, right? Where you're kind of understanding a subset as to as to uh, as to how to do it, and then when you're in the do piece, what you're doing effectively is you're working inside a tool that is modeling your life as you're performing these as you're performing these behaviors. And so for example, there's a a part of the tool which is centered around organization and control, right? So organizing your stuff. And then that gets connected to the why you're doing it, which is the secret to the motivation. And then that happens in the context of things that we in Billy Minds call spaces which correspond to those different parts of your life that you need to balance yourself, the people around you in non-work and then the, uh, and then the work connections that you have. And then changing all of that <laughs> is a section in the, in the tool that we call changes, which is your pathway to kind of dealing and becoming resilient as all of that structure, uh, all of that structure changes. And so that's how kind of how we connect the learn piece um, with the do piece. But, in terms of like an individual like sub skill that we would build inside 10 minutes, it could be something like, for example, developing an end of day routine that allows you to switch off from work and go into the, the rest of your life. Or it could be as simple as establishing focus periods with rest breaks in between where you're unifocusing on one thing and, uh, and then you're taking a small break after it before, you know, focusing again, or it could be something along the lines of being able to consciously not take on more than three or four or five things at once that all get in the way of each other and then learning how to prioritize against, uh, against them. And so you're doing that kind of under the umbrella of, of each of those skills. And then all of those sort of sub skills build up and make you really good at organization or make you really good at control and so on. And we allow people to, to test that. Um, obviously their interaction in the tool is helping them do it, but we also, um, certify people as well so they can get, so we call it a flexible work professional certification that allows them to be able to demonstrate to themselves that they can do this really well. 
And then our hope is, our goal is ultimately that that will also allow them to be able to demonstrate to their employer that they can do it really well. Because we haven't really spoken about this, but one of the things that worries me about what's happening right now in the, um, in, you know, with the macroeconomic situation and so on, is that we've already seen a significant drop in the number of job openings out there that specify that you can work, uh, that you can work remotely. And we've already seen certain leaders who are like trying to, <laughs> trying to pull people back in, into the office. I think it's going to become super important, particularly for people that migrated from one part of the country to, an, uh, to another in the anticipation they'd always be able to work remotely. It's going to be super important for those people to be able to demonstrate to potential employers that they can work really well remotely. And so that's the heart of why we do this flexible work professional certification. You'd be able to say, look, I got proof. I can prove that I'm going to be an effective remote worker because I've got this flexible work professional certification. So that is something that we think it's, you know, we're startups, so we don't have like thousands of people with it already, but we, our hope is that people will take that and use that as a means of, as a proof point. Yeah, the interesting thing about, just to make a note on this, about the drop in remote work openings uh, is that LinkedIn reported, I thought this was a very interesting statistic, reported that obviously it's dropped quite a bit since the high, not quite a bit, but it's dropped you know, uh, a significant amount. But the interesting part about it is that more than half of the applications that LinkedIn is processing are going to that small subset of job uh, openings that are remote. So it's almost yep, like the too. you know remote jobs have actually decreased from whatever I think it was twenty percent, and now it's decreased to like sixteen or or fifteen percent. Yeah, but fifty percent of job applications are going to those fifteen percent of of job openings, which is very interesting. So um, that means as an employee, you've got to stand out and you've got to be able to prove yeah. that, that you can do this. So I, yeah, I mean, we think it's a, a, a big opportunity. Yeah. I, this has been such an interesting conversation and I've been taking down notes and I have tabs open on things that I want to look up into because this is such an important topic and, and it's something that I've personally felt in my life and I've found some solutions for some things, but I'm realizing through this conversation, I'm not good at some things. So I'm very interested to look into this more. If someone's like me and listening to this and is interested in, in learning more, where can they go? And what's, I know that you're working on some exciting things uh, at yeah. Billion Minds for uh, the upcoming year here, but can you tell us a bit more about where we can find out more about it? Uh, uh, and then of course, like what people can look forward to. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the assessment that I mentioned, so that's available on our uh, on our website today. So if you are in a position where you're just trying to figure out where you're at against those uh, the skills that I mentioned, and actually also even including well-being as well, then you can take an assessment for uh, for free on our website, um, and it will it'll give you a personalized report. It'll give you an indication as to uh, to the areas that you need you really need to focus in on. And then you can also access um, a free trial of, of the Billion Minds platform itself on, uh, on our website to start addressing some, <laughs> some of those issues. So um, that I would say for, you know, if, if, if it's individual users that are just, you know, trying to, trying to figure that out for themselves, then the assessment is a, is a great way to start and just go to billionminds.com and you'll find it there. Um, for companies... Um, so we sell predominantly to, uh, to organizations that are looking to, uh, to understand and, re and really kind of know that this is a, um, this has to be figured out, right? So really smart companies, I think are really starting to understand that a distributed workforce isn't just going to be the reality because of what you said about like, it's what employees want and it's, it's the jobs that people are applying for. So it's not just for that reason. It's because it represents a massive business opportunity for the companies that really get it, right? The companies that really understand this now know that, you know, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or I could recruit from the, you know, in the 30 miles outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma, or try to get a whole bunch of people to move to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Tulsa Remote is a program that helps people do that. But I'm going to, if I can recruit from the seven, what are we, over 7 billion people worldwide 
instead, man, the world's my oyster. I can do, <laughs> I can do pretty much anything. So companies are really going to start to realize the forward thinking ones are really going to start to realize that. So the ones, so that's why we really work with companies because we're finding companies that are just saying, yeah, we've got to address this. And so we've developed, um, for the start of 2020, three, we're, uh, we're doing a invitation only beta for our software only offering. So previously, a lot of it was like centered around coaching and, um, and all that kind of stuff. But we've managed to distill all of our learnings into something that's purely a software, um, purely a software platform. So 100% um, self paced and uh, and offered up as software. And so we're offering that as a as a beta to organizations. So if anybody um, is looking at this for their company, then I would email us at beta at billionminds.com. And, and uh, who knows, we, I, I know we're kind of late in the year now, but we might have a, a spot or two up on that. So that would be the two things. So an individual just go to the website, figure it out, do the assessment, sign up uh, for a company that would be interested in participating in the beta. Just email us at beta at billionminds.com. That's awesome. Uh, I'm definitely going to check that out. But uh, Paul, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, this has been a lot of fun and I've learned a ton. So thank you. Mika, really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. <laughs>